Good morning, Waterstone. How are we doing? Good. Because I am here to declare to you this morning that hope is not lost, hope is found. But not in the sense of what we've experienced this last week. We're talking about true hope this morning. We're talking about hope that motivates, hope that strengthens, hope that gives us uh, something to live for today in the midst of whatever is happening. Uh, Here we are at the end of 2015, the last Sunday of the year, uh, also the last Sunday of our Advent series, When God Visits. And this morning I want to talk about uh, something that we have to look forward to, something that is on the horizon. We've looked at events in the past in Scripture about when God has visited, uh, stories that have been kept for us for all these years and all these generations, and to give us an idea of who God is and to let us see that he wants to be with us. He is the very present God, Emmanuel, God with us. But there is an event that is yet to come. The next time that God visits, he's not just coming for a vacation. He's not coming for a couple days and then going somewhere else. He's coming, setting up shop and establishing his kingdom for good, uh, making all the wrongs in this world righted, and it will be very good. When we come to the end of a year, oftentimes we look back on the year that has been, and we'll look at headlines and be reminded of things that have taken place. And in 2015, uh, we learned some things. Uh, We learned that uh, this far distant thing in space called Pluto actually looks pretty pretty cool. Uh, New Horizons took a journey of almost 10 years, uh, and finally we were able to see these up-close and personal pictures of this faraway planet, whether you call it a planet or not a planet, we won't even worry about that, but we got a chance to see Pluto. We learned what that looks like. That was pretty neat. Keeping in, in, in time with the space theme, uh, we also did learn, those of us that are Star Wars fans, that Star Wars is good and alive and well. Episode 7 is out. I have seen it twice, and I will probably see it at least two or three more times before I purchase it on DVD to watch it for the rest of my life. Uh, in keeping with the theme of the empire, we also learned that the patriots can in fact be beat in the snow and in the cold weather. Whether or not that can happen in Foxborough, we'll leave that for 2016, Um, but we did learn and we did rejoice and celebrate in that. But not all headlines uh, were full of rejoicing and celebrating and good times. There were also some very difficult headlines. Cities uh, like Roseburg, Oregon and San Bernardino, California found national headline news for reasons that they would have rather not found the news. And we were reminded that violence is still very much a part of our society and our culture. And there's a problem there. Uh, a city like Paris also made headlines for reasons that it doesn't want to make headlines. As famous as that city is known for romance and all of that, uh, terror struck Paris. Uh, and we grieve and we mourn the loss of those that lost their lives in that horrific attack. We see that terror is alive and well, and unfortunately, we don't know when it will strike. ISIS has become a buzzword of sorts. Uh, My own kids have asked me, my oldest in particular, who loves watching the news. Fortunately, watching the news comes with some of these tough questions like, Dad, is ISIS coming to America? Dad, is ISIS coming to Denver? Uh, We see that there's all these difficulties around us. 2016 is going to have its own headlines. We don't know what those are going to be. In your own personal life this last year had its headlines. 
Perhaps this was a year that there was great rejoicing and a new baby was born in the family or there was a wedding or a new job or promotion, something to celebrate. Even if it was just a birthday and you saw that those candles on the keg meant you were still alive and you blew those out and wished for something for that year or that day. Or maybe there were some negative headlines as well. Maybe there was a diagnosis and a reminder that we are frail. Maybe there was a death in the family, an unexpected loss, loss of a loved one, loss of a job. Whatever difficulties there may be, you are reminded of how frail and how broken this world is. You see, we do live in a broken world, and as much as we would like to, uh, to think of this Pollyanna sort of mentality that everything is all good, and there is a lot of good that is happening in this world, we do see a lot of good taking place. There is still a lot of fear that is instilled within people because of what we see in this world. I was having a conversation with a family member uh, just a couple days ago over Christmas dinner, and uh, my aunt had gone to a Christmas Uh, mass service, and she shared that as much as she enjoyed going there, uh, there was the constant fear that was within her with this large room and this, this room packed full of people. What if? What if this is one of those moments? What if this is one of those times is going to make the headline news? And she said, I felt claustrophobic and I felt afraid. And I think her sentiments are unfortunately an indication of what many of us do feel as, as we see the headlines in the news. And we don't know. And there is this sense of unease, this sense of fear that can be brought about because of what we do see happening in our world. But I'm here to remind you, remember, hope is not lost. Hope is found. And we come to a passage of scripture here this morning, Revelation chapter 19, the second coming of Christ. When God visits next on the the theological timeline, he's coming to set up shop for good to establish his kingdom, to make all of the wrongs righted, and to let us know that hope is going to be here for all eternity. It's not just something that is fleeting and something that might come and go, but it is something that will be established for good. Hope is not lost. Hope is found. But before we get to this passage in Revelation, there's a few things that I want us to to consider. Because as we're helicoptering into this passage in Revelation, uh, Revelation is one of those difficult books It's a difficult book to read, difficult book to interpret, and in many ways it's a difficult book to preach and to teach. Which, by the way, come back in the fall, our fall preaching series, Nick and Larry are going to begin tackling the book of Revelation and taking a look at some of those, maybe those difficult topics that come with Revelation. But Revelation was a a book that was written to a group of people in a particular time, in a context within history. It was written in a genre called apocalyptic literature. That's not something that we're very familiar with. We don't see a lot of that today. But in those days, it was a very popular form of writing. Oftentimes, when we look at Revelation and we look at the stuff that deals with the end times, we think of it in terms of wanting to predict the future, wanting to set out this exact timeline of what is going to happen, when is it going to happen, what is it exactly going to look like. In many ways, our culture has sensationalized these events surrounding the end times. We have book series and we have movies, we have songs and all of these things have crafted and shaped not just the thinking within the church, but even those outside of the church and unfortunately a probably more sensationalized way than was ever intended. But as we look at Revelation and step back from our perspective in the 21st century and insert ourselves into the latter first century of Asia Minor, 
we see that this book was written to a group of people that were being persecuted because they were Christians. The Roman Empire was uh, large and was strong and was not keen of this group of people that proclaimed another king. Did not want to lift these people up, but wanted to persecute and even kill them. You also had this religious uprising, religious religions outside of the church that were pressing against the churches and they were tempted to compromise in their convictions. And so as this book is written, the revelation is given to John. He presents this to the people for two reasons. One, to bring comfort, and two, to bring conviction. Comfort in the midst of difficult times. Comfort in the midst of their own news headlines that they would have had that day. The difficulties within their culture. They would not have had the internet and they would not have had the news that we would have at their fingertips But the things that were happening right there in front of them to their family members, to their loved ones, would have caused great concern. But then there would have been conviction for those that were claiming Christ, yet were tempted to sway away from the truth of the gospel, to compromise little bits here and there. And we see in chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation, these letters written to these churches, describing God's opinion of what they were doing good, but also the things that they are struggling with. And so as we helicopter into Revelation 19, we don't have the benefit of having worked through the previous 18 chapters. I'm not going to go into timelines and all that stuff, regardless of what camp you fall within or don't fall within in your understanding of the end times and whether it's pre-trib, post-trib, post-wrath, pre-wrath, post-millennial, all of those things. Regardless of what you hold to or anyone holds to, Christ is going to return. There is a second coming of Christ that is awaiting us on the horizon. We don't know when that day is going to be, but he is going to return. So as we come into this passage this morning, we're going to look at it from that, from within the, uh, that lens of comfort and conviction. That's how we're going to apply this. And there's three questions that we're going to ask of this passage. One, is Christ really going to return? Is he actually coming back? You may doubt. Many already do doubt Is this just a fancy fairy tale or is this actually going to happen? Is Christ really going to return? We're going to assume that he does return. So second, the next question we're going to ask is what is he going to be like when he returns? What is he going to be like? And third, what is he going to do when he actually steps foot on this earth? When he comes, what is it that he is going to do? If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Revelation 19. We will also have the passage up on the screen. But let's read Revelation 19, 11 through 21 together. It says, I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse, whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe, dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun who cried in a loud voice to all the birds flying in midair, Come, gather together for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings, generals, 
and the mighty, of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, great and small. Then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to wage war against the rider on the horse and his army. But the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet who had performed the signs on its behalf. With these signs he had deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. The rest were killed with the sword coming out of the mouth of the rider on the horse, and all the birds gorged themselves on their flesh. And everyone had warm, fuzzy feelings all around. Let's pray, and we'll talk about this passage. Father, thank you. Thank you for this morning. Thank you for another opportunity to gather. Thank you that we had an opportunity to celebrate our Savior and our King's birth. Father, as we take a look now, just a couple days after that, turn our eyes towards the future, and we want to remember and, and celebrate his coming. We don't know when that will be, but give us eyes to see and ears to hear and give us hearts that are willing to be challenged and stretched and consider just a little bit more of who you want us to be as we await that glorious day when Christ returns. So help us now. I praise in Jesus' name. Amen. So first question, is Jesus actually going to return? Patience is not a virtue within our culture, generally. We like expediency. We like fast. We have fast food. You can stay in your car, go to a little box, say some words, go to a window, give them some money in the form of a piece of plastic, go to another window, and they hand you that food, and you can drive on your way. We like fast. Our our cell phones are no longer just phones. If anything, we hardly even use them as phones anymore. They're texting devices, messaging devices, news-receiving devices, emailing devices, and yes, they might actually work as a phone. We like expediency. We like now. We don't necessarily like to wait. It's been almost 2,000 years since Christ left this earth and ascended into heaven. And some might question, is he actually going to return? Is he actually going to come back? If he hasn't done it yet, maybe he's not even going to do it at all. Doesn't he see all the brokenness in the world? Isn't his heart grieved? Why wouldn't he want to come and make things right right now? Because for us, we want it right now. We want it right now. In some ways, we have a difficult time looking forward to this event or keeping it on the forefront of our minds because it's not as though we don't look forward to things. But I think perhaps it's not just the looking forward to that we struggle with. It's the fact that we don't know when. We don't know the day. We don't know the time. We don't know the hour. You see, when we look forward to Christmas and we have Advent celebrations and we have these little things, our kids got this Lego Advent calendar thing. And so they can build little shapes out of Legos and there's a a different object each day and it reminds them somehow of Christmas. It actually had nothing to do with Jesus, but it was Legos and they thought that was pretty cool. We count down to birthdays. We count down to weddings and anniversaries. We count down to the long saved for vacations. We count down to so many things, but we cannot count down to the second coming of Christ because we do not have a date on the calendar. Geico even has a commercial right now, and if you've seen it, we're even in the lunchroom. There is a countdown as the microwave is ticking down the seconds and the band Europe plays their ever-famous final countdown song. It's the final countdown. We don't have a countdown. 
We don't have a countdown for the second coming. And because we don't have that date on the calendar, perhaps we push it aside. We don't allow this reality to shape our thinking and to craft our understanding of who God wants us to be. And maybe we even start to fall into that category of doubting if he is actually going to return. So how can we keep this at the front of our minds? Is there any way that we can do this? We we obviously have celebrations built into the rhythms of life. Every year, we just got off this Christmas celebration thing that from Thanksgiving until Christmas, it's pretty much a month of celebration and anticipation. We'll have the same thing with Easter, where at Ash Wednesday, we begin this, uh, this countdown to the celebration of the resurrection of Christ. But what do we do with this second coming? We don't have it built in. There actually was a group of of churches and, and some denominations that back in the first half of the 20th century decided that they wanted to do something about this. And it wasn't just about the second coming, that was a piece of it, but more it was wanting to build into the rhythms of life and ministry a reminder that there is going to be a fulfilled kingdom, that the kingdom we see now is just a foretaste of what is to come. We're living in this tension of the already and the not yet. And so for 13 weeks from the end of August until right before the beginning of Advent, they created something that was called Kingdom Tide, a 13-week celebration in their liturgical calendar where every year they were reminded of the reality of the kingdom. And it stuck around for some time. And as I've discovered this and done some research, there's not many left. There's some within some Methodist denominations that still will celebrate Kingdom Tide But it was almost like one of those fads that came and went. It's almost as though it's too difficult to really keep the kingdom in its fulfillment on the horizon and right on the forefront of our thoughts and our understandings of who God wants us to be. I wonder if there's a way that we could somehow bring kingdom tied into the regular rhythms of our life corporately or if anything personally. How do we make sure to remind each other that there is coming a day when Christ will return and make things right? That the difficulties of this world, they are difficult and there's disasters and there's struggles and there's all sorts of things like that. But there is going to come a day when those wrongs are made right. What would that do if we were able to remind each other of that on a regular basis? What would that do? Might that change our understanding of who God wants us to be? Might that give us a little more hope in the midst of whatever we're facing? Might that even bring about a little bit of conviction, knowing that if Christ were to return now, how would he find me? Would I be ashamed in knowing that every day that he waits to return is another day where his mercy can be experienced? Is Christ going to return? He better return. If he doesn't return, then Paul is a liar. Peter's a liar. Jesus himself is a liar. You see, in John 14, in the Last Supper with his disciples, he gave them words of hope and he said, I am going away, but I will return for you so that you will be with me. As Paul is encouraging the Thessalonians, he describes for them this event, and the trumpet will sound and the shout will come and we'll be raised in the air to meet Christ and to escort him back down to earth to be with him forever. John writes it in his Revelation. Here in Revelation 19. As Jesus in Acts 1 ascended from the earth, he died and buried and rose again and 
had those last days with the disciples and he's standing there on the Mount of Olives and he gives them the last commission and he starts to rise into the air and the disciples are standing there looking up and they're watching him like a balloon is going up into the sky and it's, you, you can kind of still see it and maybe became like a, the tip of a pen there in the air and they're still looking up and some angels come behind him and basically ask him, what are you guys doing? What are you doing looking up in the air? He told you to get busy about some stuff, so get busy. He will come back in the same way that he left. He will come back. He will come back. Is Jesus going to return? Yes. He has to return. He has to return. So when he does return, though, what is he going to be like? What is he going to look like? How is he described? Well, it just so happens that John gives us a description. He gives us a description. And what's interesting is I was reading through this a bunch. I thought, you know, John, it would have been really easy if you had just said, Jesus is coming back. Could have saved yourself some space. I know they didn't have paper and printing was a premium all and all that stuff. Couldn't you have just said, Jesus is coming back? That wasn't good enough for John. He gave us some pretty detailed descriptions about Jesus as he comes back. So let's look at Revelation 19, 11 through 16. We're not going to be able to go through and, and point out all the details of all the figures and the images that's popular throughout Revelation. Part of the apocalyptic literature is there's figurative language that's used and images that are used to describe something. We're not going to be able to go through all, but we're going to point out a few things that I want to make sure we note. Let's read verses 11 through 16. It says, I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Three things I want to point out about the description of Christ. The first is he's riding a white horse. As the heavens open up, you see this white horse coming and there's this rider upon it. Now, a white horse was not used going into battle. The images that are here, the people in those days would have understood within the Roman Empire as they go off to battle and, and go and conquer other lands and, and other nations. There were certain things that would be practiced after a victory. And one of those is the general or the king would come back riding upon a white horse. But here we see the rider on a white horse going into battle. Do you know what that message conveys to the people? The battle is already won before it has even been fought. The rider is on a white horse. Second thing I want to note about this description is he's not just wearing a crown, he is wearing many crowns. If he were a king, he could have been described as wearing a crown, and they would have understood that this was a king wearing a crown upon his head. But he's described as wearing many crowns. Fitting with the name that follows the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This is not just any king. This is the king, the conquering king, 
who is coming back. And then the third image that is really interesting and in some ways peculiar, he has this sword coming out of his mouth. What in the world does that mean, a sword coming out of his mouth? If you look up artwork for uh, Revelation 19 and the sword coming out of his mouth, artists render this in various ways. Some of them will literally have it as a sword coming out of his mouth like a giant tongue. Sword coming out of his mouth. Others have it kind of hovering right there where the hilt is about six inches away from the face as though it was using the force somehow magically holding it there going before. And some even have him holding the sword as though they didn't know what to do with the sword coming out of his mouth so they just put it in his hand because that's classic and that's normally what you do. But what could this mean? The sword is coming out of his mouth. Is it possible that it could be parallel to what we see in the beginning? That in the beginning, God spoke everything into existence just by uttering the words, let there be light, and there was light. Let there be firmament, and let there be dry ground. Let there be beasts on the land and fish on the sea. And as he spoke, life came into being. Is it possible that what we see here in the end is a figure of of speech? That he's not speaking things into being. What he's doing, he's speaking them to destruction. And simply with his words, he is able to come and destroy his enemies because he is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Not only do we have these descriptions, but we have some names. He's described as faithful and true. Faithful and true. Faithful to fulfill the calling that is upon him a calling that we saw lived out in those 30 years of life, three years of ministry, culminating in death on a cross and resurrection from the tomb and ascending to the right hand of the Father. That calling is still in order right now and there is coming a time. And Christ indicates he doesn't even know when the day is going to be. But there will be a day when the Father says, Son, it is time for you to go. Your hour has come and he will be faithful to come as the conquering king. He's not just faithful, but he's also true which means that he is right. And his measure of justice is going to be true. And everything that he speaks and everything that he does is going to be right and going to be true. And he is the embodiment of truth. He's faithful and true. John also says that there is an unknown name. It's as though he looked and he couldn't decipher the lettering or maybe it's blurred. We don't know exactly what it means, but somehow he knew there was a name there, but it was an unknown name. And commentators all agree, as much as they disagree in Revelation, commentators all agree, we don't know what that name is. Brilliant, brilliant. Maybe it has something to do with, in Philippians 2, when Paul says that the name of Christ, every knee will bow, that at some point there is going to be a name that right now we couldn't comprehend, we couldn't understand, but there's going to be an aha moment of sorts. The light bulb's going to go on, and at that moment, that name will be revealed, and we'll go, oh, That's right, that is him. Thirdly, we see him described as the word of God. Last week we saw that in John chapter 1, this is a very very popular name that John likes. And there he is the revealed word, the logos, the truth, the knowledge, the understanding of who God is. Here he is the conquering word. Not just the revealed word, but the authoritative word. The word that took on flesh. It is that same one. Perhaps John is connecting those dots that there would be no doubt that this is in fact Jesus, the word made flesh. 
And then the fourth one, the fourth one, verse 16, on his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. If there was any doubt at this point as to who this is, John removes all of that doubt. At his crucifixion, there was a sign placed above him in mockery, King of the Jews, King of the Jews. Here, though, the name is declaring that all would see this is not just the King of the Jews. This is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. There's a lot here in these verses to describe Jesus. Again, John could have just said, and Jesus returned. I think now, as hopefully you see, as I do as well, that there's power in these descriptions. There's power in these descriptions, an understanding of who this king is. You see, we live in a a day where a baby in a manger is acceptable. A baby in a manger is acceptable. We have no problem singing songs and putting on pageants. It's cute. He's cuddly. He doesn't even cry. He's the perfect baby. But what do we do with this rider on a horse? There's a difference. There's a big discrepancy between the two. In many ways, our culture has no problem, even within the church, we have no problem accepting a baby, but we really struggle with not just a savior, but we struggle with a king that we have to bow our hearts to, we have to bow our lives to. We have to say, you are the Lord of my life. You are the king. You know, as we listen to Christmas carols and all these songs and you watch the NBC specials and you hear it on the radio and radio stations, you know, they'll put on nothing but Christmas music 24 hours a day. Mary, did you know that your baby boy would one day rule the nations? That was broadcast for millions to hear. Yet I wonder, I wonder how many deaf ears that fell upon because we have an image of a baby in a manger. And we don't have an image of a rider on a horse. See, it's not as though the baby in the manger is the wrong picture of Christ. That is the right picture of Christ. It is a wonderful thing to celebrate that God came down, humbled himself, and took on human flesh. And we should celebrate that fact. That is one of the most amazing truths in Scripture. And that baby grew up, became a young man, and became a grown man, lived a perfect sinless life, and eventually went to a cross, was crucified for you and me taking on the punishment that you and I deserved, taking on the wrath of God because of the sins of the world. He was taken down from that cross and buried, but he didn't stay dead. He rose again on the third day. And these are all good and right images of God, of Christ, but it is not complete unless we also put into into here the category of the rider on a horse. You see, it's not that we have the wrong picture of who Christ is. It's that we oftentimes don't have a complete picture of who he is. We like the baby in the manger because he's cute and he's cuddly. He's not offensive. He's not convicting. We'll accept the the man on the cross because I'm thankful that I don't have to suffer in that way. I'm thankful that I don't have to take that upon myself. That the wages of sin is death is what Paul said. He took that upon himself. And we'll definitely accept the resurrected Christ because it's, it's proof that he has power to conquer death and the ability to grant eternal life to us by simply believing. We'll accept that, no problem. But then we get to this rider on a horse. Holy cow, I don't know what to do with that. That's not Jesus, my BFF. 
Jesus, my homeboy. In many ways, we've recreated an image of Christ to fit what we want, as opposed to taking a look at the entirety of what's given to us in the Bible and saying, let me realign my thinking and my understanding in my life around the entirety of who Christ is. What has shaped your functional image of who Jesus is? Is it our culture? Is it popular Christianity that wants Jesus is just my friend and my comforter? He is those things. He's not just those things though. Is it wishful thinking? I really want a Jesus like this. I really want him to be this for me. Because as a little child, we were told, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And those are great truths, but so much of it is about me. Jesus is here for me. At what point do we turn that conversation around and say, I'm here for Jesus? I'm here for Jesus. And when we take a look at that rider on the horse, we have to reshape our thinking. We have to reshape our thinking and go, that needs to be a part of my functional image of who Jesus is. And it's not that it should just instill fear because when he's coming and the destruction that we're going to see, he's coming to conquer his enemies. If you believe in Christ and you are one of his children, you don't have to worry about that destruction. You're safe as his child. But perhaps looking at that image of a rider on a horse, that might inspire us to something. That might inspire us to say, if that is my king and that is my savior and he's coming into battle and he is confident and already victorious before the battle has even been fought, then perhaps I can have strength and courage to fight whatever battles I have here today. Back in the Civil War, there was a a general for the South, Thomas Jackson. He gained a nickname, Stonewall. Stonewall Jackson. He used to sit high on his horse. Back in those days, uh, generals would have to go from place to place on the battlefield quickly, and the only way to do that quickly was upon a horse. The disadvantage of being upon a horse, though, was that you were higher up. You're an easier target for a sniper on the enemy's side. And as he would ride back and forth and give commands and do all the generals needed to do in the heat of battle, bullets would be whizzing by, but he would sit high upon his horse with strength and with confidence with absolutely no fear, with no fear at all. And he was asked, how can you sit upon your horse and do this? How can you show courage in the midst of bullets whizzing right by you? Aren't you afraid at all? And he made a statement to the effect of, I know that my life is in God's hands. And if today is the day that I should die, then I die. But if not, I have nothing to fear. The interesting thing though was that as he sat high upon his horse, he became an inspiration and an example to his men. And they became known as the Stonewall Brigade because they would go into battle with bravery and courage because of their general that they knew was strong and confident. That's an example from history we have in the past. We have a far better example before us of not just a courageous rider, but the courageous, strong, sovereign king, warrior king, who is on our side and we are on his side. If that doesn't give hope and inspiration, I don't know what else does. 
Hope is not lost today. Hope is found because we have the strong rider on the horse coming back someday to make things right. So if we know that he is coming back, we know what he is going to be like, what is he going to do? What is he going to do? Look with me again at our passage in Revelation 19. Let's read the last, the last half of the passage, starting in verse 17. It says, And I saw an angel standing in the sun who cried in a loud voice to all the birds flying in midair, Come, gather together for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings, generals, and the mighty, of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, great and small. Then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to wage war against the rider on the horse and his army. But the beast was captured and with it the false prophet who had performed the signs on his behalf. With these signs he had deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. The rest were killed with the sword coming out of the mouth of the rider on the horse and all the birds gorged themselves on their flesh." When he returns, it is going to be disastrous. We often will look at Revelation 21 and 22. We'll just jump there. It's a good place to jump. The eternal state, after sin has been defeated, Satan and and all of evil and wickedness has been cast into the lake of fire, and we're now back into this restored, completely restored world. We see the city coming from heaven down to earth. And we have this great picture of what we're destined for, what eternity future is going to look like. But Revelation 19 has to happen. It has to happen. We look back in Genesis 3, and after the fall, you have the statements that's made to the serpent that the serpent is going to bruise the heel of the descendant from the woman, but he will crush his head. Here we see the beginning of that finally coming about. We may want the Hallmark movie, but we're going to see Gladiator, Braveheart, in the third installment of the Hobbit movie, the Battle of the Five Armies, all wrapped into one and then some. What's he going to do? There's two things primarily that he's going to accomplish. He's going to conquer his enemies and he's going to bring justice. We don't, again, have the luxury of going back and knowing the beast and the false prophet. Not going to go into great detail there, but basically these are the the personification of evil and everything that is against God, that is trying to sway people with a secular world system and a false religion. And we see inklings of that, and there's going to be a time when this stuff is going to ramp up more and more and more. And what do we see here? We see the rider on the horse just kind of flicking them into the lake of fire. What's interesting as we read this passage, even though he's got a host, an army that is coming with him, he is the only one that is fighting. And he's fighting with the sword out of his mouth. When we see these movies that have battles on both sides, there is always loss. This is a mighty battle where only one side is going to experience loss and the other side is not going to experience any of that. Because as the writer comes back, He utterly destroys all of his enemies. Not only does this entire passage describe the destruction of his enemies, but it describes how he brings justice. Because even today, right now, I'm sure that within your heart, there is some inkling, something that is just not settled because you see injustice around you. 
and you see things that aren't just, it's, it's not right. And then there's major catastrophes and major injustices around us. And we go, we know that's not right. And there's something hopefully yearning within to say, I want that to be made right. Know that there is coming a day when all of these wrongs are going to be made right. And justice will prevail. Because when we see injustice, it should leave a bitter taste in our mouth. It should leave something that makes us wanting more and hoping for more. Because of the fall, and from Genesis 3 up until this point, we are living, and all of the people that have lived before us and those that will live after us until that time, are living in a world that is broken and fallen. But there is coming a day when it will be made right. There is coming a day. Hope is not lost. Hope is found, and it is found in the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So what do we do with this? How do we tie a nice, neat little bow on this and say, here, go home, be warm, be filled, be happy, and go eat leftovers? Perhaps you're sitting here this morning and you fall into that side of, I don't know if I really am looking forward to this. This sounds gruesome, this sounds bad, this sounds difficult, this sounds really, really hard. If you're here this morning and you don't know Christ and you've never given your life, you've never bowed the knee to him as your king, the hard truth, the hard reality, it is a reality, it is a truth, it's found in the Bible, and that is that there is coming a judgment, there is coming a time when things will be reckoned and things will be settled. Every day that Christ awaits to come back is a day that you are experiencing God's mercy. It is something as simple as saying, Lord, I give my life to you. I believe. I believe that this one that is coming on the horse is the one who was born as a baby, God in flesh, went to the cross to take on the sins of the world, didn't stay dead, rose again on the third day to prove that he has the power over death and the ability to give eternal life. And what scripture says is by simply believing By simply believing, you can become a child of God and can find yourself behind that rider coming as one of the hosts as opposed to the ones watching him come in terror. Perhaps, though, you're sitting here going, I don't know if I want Jesus to come back today because I know my life is a mess. I know I am not close to him. I'm putting on a good veneer. I'm at church. I know I'm in the right place, but... I've got so much brokenness and I feel so lost in many ways. I know I'm his child, but I am struggling. Know too as well that every day that he awaits to come back is a day for mercy. You can turn, seek the Father's forgiveness. Seek the Father's forgiveness. Perhaps today is a day to turn something around and say, Lord, I want to yield my life to you as king. Or maybe you're sitting here and this message of hope is what you needed. Yeah, there's tough stuff in life. And 2015 has been a hard year. And 2016 doesn't look any more promising. But there is going to come a day when things will be righted. And in the midst of the difficulty, you can find hope to stand strong and stand secure because you know that Christ is coming back. Because you know that truth. Perhaps you can walk away from here saying, Lord, help me to trust you more today. Help me to walk with you faithfully day by day, not knowing what the next day brings, but today I will trust you and tomorrow I will trust you. 
and you string some days together and you see his hand at work. There's a famous writer that I'm sure most of us are familiar with. J.R.R. Tolkien was uh, a masterful writer, not just being able to put pen to paper, but putting ideas, creating worlds, creating languages, creating all that we know in some of our most popular and familiar and favorite stories. And there was a literary device that he, he kind of coined and termed. It's called the eucatastrophe. Take the word catastrophe and put a prefix EU on the front of it. We know what a catastrophe is. It's a very difficult situation that brings about disastrous results. And he put this U prefix on the front end and to describe a particular situation. He would write these into his, his books and his stories where the main characters and the heroes would be in the most dire and difficult of circumstances. It would seem as though all hope had been lost and there was nothing good that could come out of the circumstance that they were in. Similar to when Frodo and Sam tossed the ring into the volcano and they're coming down, the journey is now complete, but now they have to get home. And they find themselves on these rocks and there's lava all around and they finally resign themselves to the fact that there is no hope, there is nothing that they can do to save themselves. And just when you think that this is the end of the story and Frodo and Sam are done for, the eagles swoop in and they carry them off to safety. This is something that Tolkien did over and over again with the writers of Rohan and Gandalf coming at the light of the day to bring the reinforcements and save, save the good guys. In many ways, that parallels what we have in Christ. That in this life, when we look at the headlines and we see that destruction, disaster, danger, all of this difficulty. Is there any hope? Is there anything good that can come of all of this? Or is this our lot in life? And we know that there is a catastrophe. We don't know when that day is. But perhaps today we can look up to the sky and just say a little prayer and say, Lord, help me. Help me to live today in light of maybe today is the day that that trumpet will sound and that shout will come and I will rise to meet my king as he comes back. And even if today is not that day, and even if it's not in this lifetime, I know that he is going to return and I will be able to spend eternity with him in his goodness for all time. What could that do if we lived our lives with that image of Jesus, the conquering king who will return? Hope is not lost. Hope is found. But hope is only found in him. Let's pray. Father, thanks. Thank you for words of comfort and words of hope and even words of conviction. I know that, Father, there are many times, many times each day where I know I'm straying and I'm wandering. May this message of a completely restored world someday because your son is returning, may that drive me to live for you even more so now. And may this message bring hope that the wrongs and injustices of this world are going to be righted. And may we find hope only in you. We cannot create hope ourselves. We may try. There are so many things of this world that call out to us with rumors and lies and inklings that maybe this will please and maybe this will satisfy. But at the end of the day, the only thing that brings true hope and courage and strength for the day is your son. Help us to live in light of that reality 
And to go from here proclaiming this message of good news, living for your kingdom, and praying, may your kingdom come, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I praise in Jesus' name. Amen.